Hello and welcome to a special edition of TV Show and Tell, the podcast about how TV shows make it from idea to screen. I'm David Bodicum. And I'm Justin Scroggy. And as we're coming up to our first anniversary, we thought it would be a good time to take stock of our past year of shows. As the name of the podcast implies, at the end of each show, we ask each guest to do a show-and-tell segment that relates to a story that's either particularly important to their TV career or something that's simply amusing. In this show, we've collated together the many and varied items that our guests have shown Justin and myself. Now, by coincidence, our two earliest show-and-tells were related to water. Executive producer Tom Blakeson tells us about a water tower, but first, the divisor of Taskmaster, Alex Horn, has something watery in his back garden. Well, the object is something I'm very embarrassed about, and I, I rarely tell people about this thing I've, I own. It is a hot tub, and I was so embarrassed about it. I actually <laughs> I got it on the same day that, Rick, that Rob Beckett got his hot tub. <laughs> and I was I was going to um, tweet about it, and then I saw him tweet about it, and then I saw the responses that he got. People <laughs> people found it very funny and teased him a lot. But it's quite I think it's quite in character for Rob to have a hot tub. I'm not sure if it's in my character, but I really like having baths. I have baths all the time. I think it's a really good place to unwind and think things through because you can't. We well, can, but you shouldn't look at technology while you're in the bath. It's the equivalent of a long walk for me. It, it does something to my brain. It freezes it up. And so I thought a hot tub would be basically a bath that is always ready for you. And I prefer, you know, a bath outside. What's not to like? And actually the kids love it. And my wife loves it. It's a good thing for the family. We all get in there and they can't be on devices as well. So we all sit and look at each other. It is brilliant for family life. And, you know, we had Christmas there with 12 people. Sometimes the kids, five-a-side football teams come back and get in it. So it's, you know, it's not in good nick. But anyway, it it's well used. But it is the place where I come up with most of my tasks. I have a waterproof notebook that was designed for mountaineers, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, which doesn't really work very well. It's a sort of pen on this rubbery paper. Yeah, I, I'm off in there late at night, burbling away to myself. And it's very rarely I come out with fully formed ideas, but I can come out with 10 ideas on a good session that, that, will, that I then need to go away and work up. But that, so that's my object. It's not a very mobile object. What is it about bubbles tingling around your body? That... <laughs> you know what? I don't even. I don't even turn the bubbles on. It's not even the bubbles. Oh, I really? find the bubbles off putting. They're too. They're too much for me. So I just sit in this hot pool. It might be quite sort of some neolithic urge to just sit in a hot geyser, you know, or or find some Red Sea type uh, body of water to immerse yourself in. <laughs> So I have to have the water really hot in a hot tub to free up part of my brain. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't really want to drill down in it too much because it might <laughs> it might ruin the magic if I knew what was going on. I have brought you the Thames Water Tower, which is sitting, as you can see, sitting in the middle of a roundabout in Shepherd's Bush. And um, I believe it does have an actual function. I think it's got something to do with overflowing water or something, but it's also meant to be a barometer. Yeah, it's meant to give you some sort of reading of the, the pressure in, inside the main water system. Yes, yeah. and it's it's a rather eye-catching, tall structure in the middle of Shepherd's Bush Roundabout. And when David Flynn and I were dealing with the fact that we actually had to make Pointless because they commissioned it, 
and we were trying to think what will the pointless column look like because we knew it was going to be a column <laughs> um what will the pointless column look like and we were stuck in traffic as always heading back to endemol's delightful offices in shepherd's bush and we both just looked up at the uh the thames water tower and went oh that's what it should look like um <laughs> And so we gave that to our, our graphic designers as a reference. doesn't really look much like it, but it's where the design started. Uh, so, yes, every time I see it, I sort of I, I, I remember that moment and, and uh, tip my hat to it. So this is about, like, a, like a cylindrical clear pipe that's about, <clears throat> I don't know, I'm guessing about 15 metres high or something like that. Yeah. And, and once upon a time, they used to dye the water blue. They did. But um, they don't do that, unfortunately, now, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but I, I, I've driven past this roundabout many, many times. I just think it's a fantastic sort of testament that, that ideas can come from anywhere. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, I know. The, 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 the tower itself has won, won awards for its design. Um, and yeah, ideas literally can come, come from anywhere. And, you know, we, we knew we needed a column. What was lovely about it was it's so tall. We wanted something imposing because... Uh, we we wanted uh, something big in the centre of the studio, so we wanted this big, tall, imposing thing. And we knew it was going to be a column because um, the way we've been playing the game in the office is that we had this Excel sheet that that sort of just ticked down coloured Excel cells uh, as the um, as the scoring happened in the office. Um, and we wanted to physicalise that, and the Thames Water Tower was the perfect way to do it. This next brace of show and tells, or shows and tell, features two of the world's most popular brands. TikTok star Nick Uhas shows off his Lego car, but first, international producer Simon Lithgow brings his own drink to the party. So I have brought with me a can of Pepsi with me today. And the right. reason I brought a can of Pepsi is kind of, I love this story, even though I wasn't really in the room as it happened. So. Originally, when they pitched Pop Idol to America, they got all the networks on the phone and Fox, my father and Simon Fuller were told, we'll pick the show up if you can get a sponsor on board. And then Fox organized his sponsor with Pepsi. And the pitch went like this. We've got this man called Simon Cowell and he is going to throw these singers under the bus. You have no idea how they're going to get these American singers and it's going to, we're going to tell them straight. If they sound terrible, if they sound like a bag of screeching cats, we're going to tell them exactly that. And the man on the Pepsi went, let me get this straight. Uh, you're going to tell these bad singers how bad they are, that they're losers, and you want Pepsi to be affiliated with this man called Simon Cowell and these losers. What you need to do is call Coca-Cola. <laughs> and Pepsi hung up. And next thing you know, they re they got Coca-Cola on the phone. They repitched it to Coca-Cola and they left everything out about Simon Cowell. They didn't mention Simon Cowell. <laughs> they had nothing to do with Simon Cowell. And Coca-Cola accepted it. And next thing you know, American Idol was by far the biggest show in the world. Okay, so this one may be a little cliche in some ways, but maybe not in others. And so I'm going to show you this, and there's a story behind this. So this, <laughs> if you can't tell, is a Lego set for a Toyota Supra GR. Now, this is like what the car actually looks like in real life, a yellow version of it. Now, the story behind it is this, is that when I was early on in my uh, entertainment career, I had a 1991 MR2 Turbo, and I worked on it, and I loved it. And this was during like my stunt skating days. At that time, 90s, 
there was this other car called the Supra, which was made extremely famous by uh, Fast and the Furious. But that car was just like, it was like three to four times outside of my price range. But that was like the big boy car, right? So it was like, if you could have a Supra, you were like in. That was, that was sort of pinnacle. You have made it in life. Now that I think about it, it's really, <laughs> it's like not, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But that stayed with me for so long that as I went out through my entire entertainment career and where I am now, um, after doing, you know, blown away and all these other TikToks and, and YouTube, I thought, well, one thing that would sort of be a benchmark for me is to buy a sports car. And so I started to become very obsessed with the new 2020, 21, and 22 Supra GR. So I put it on my goal board, of which it's still up there right now. And I spent all year last year uh, through the pandemic trying to hunt one down. And I found that Supra and I bought it. And when it, it, when it arrived off the truck, um, the person that I bought from the dealership had put this in the front seat as a gift for me. We're not afraid to get into the technical details here on Show and & Tell, and a couple of our guests have shown us something highly mathematical. In a moment, it's University Challenge star Bobby Siegel, but first, here's US game show producer Aaron Solomon. I decided to bring a calculator not just because I'm a former math major, which I was, but because math is actually very important, crucial even to the development of game shows when it comes to the scoring system and prizing. So I brought a calculator, which actually relates to the TV show, Show Me the Money, that I was referring to previously. So the original format of Show Me the Money, the concept was that there would be two rounds of gameplay. The first round, if you got an answer correct, you would add whatever money the dancer had in their scroll. If you got it wrong, you would subtract it. Then when you got to round two, if you got an answer correct, you would multiply it by whatever factor the dancer had or divide it by the factor. And this actually leads to a very funny story that we had in development where one of the executives said, you know what would be fun is to make one of the factors that we multiply or divide by a zero. <laughs> I was sitting in the room with actually another great game show statistician, good friend of mine, David Hammett. And we said, well, the problem with that, they said, there's two problems, actually. One of them is bad. And the other one is catastrophically bad. The bad version is what does it look like to the viewer if, you know, somebody's sitting on $100,000 and they answer this really hard question correct. And congratulations, let's find out what that's going to do to your bank. Zero. <laughs> you lose all your money for having gotten something correct. It seems ill-fitting. But the worst problem is, what if you get it wrong? You would divide by zero. And so this executive said, well, that just means it would turn to zero, right? And our mathematician had to explain that, no, when you divide by zero, the answer is infinity. So what would happen is, I'm sorry, you got the answer wrong, but the good news is you have an infinite amount of money now. <laughs> <laughs> and so we explained that they would have a legitimate lawsuit if they ever tried to complain and the settlement would be prohibitive. So <laughs> for so many reasons, the multiplying and dividing rounds ended up going away and the show ultimately just became about adding and subtracting. So the thing I actually wanted to bring 
something called a Klein bottle. I don't have it, Amni. It's my to my dad's house, but I've got something which has the Klein bottle. So here is a pencil case, which you can see. So during our time on University Challenge, um, we had lots of yeah. Again, it was a strange season. With Eric Monk and myself, there were lots of fans, and they made fan memorabilia, T-shirts, phone covers, duvet covers, and I bought a few of the things. One of the things I bought was I bought this pencil case that they made of our team. But the reason I bought, bought this is, okay, you're normally allowed one mascot, but we had three mascots. One, we had um, uh, Ellie the pink duck, because our college has loads of ducks in the manual. Then we had Manny the blue lion, because we have a lion on our crest. So Manny and Ellie, almost like Emmanuel. But the last thing I bought with me is I was doing my master's at the same time as doing my um, uh, time on university challenge and teaching. One of my students in year eight made a three-dimensional Klein bottle for me. It's almost a bit like if anyone's heard of the Mobius strip, you know the thing where you've got a strip that you you can bend a piece of paper and you're uh, still on the same side, but you can go round and round and round. A Klein bottle is a sort of an example of that. It's a non-orientable surface, but I won't get into that. But the reason I love that is it almost represents me in the sense of it's, a, it's, it's something that I had in a quiz show, but I brought it onto the quiz show because I wanted my students to say, I, I might be on telly, but I'm still thinking of you. I'm still your math teacher. Um, One of my math teachers actually made a Klein bottle out of an old pair of his trousers. Ooh. So, uh, <laughs> I love that. Uh, but what was what was your climb bottle made out? My of? My student actually, he's managed to three D print it. And I'm not sure how he did that. Um, he's now actually my actually he's one of my first ever students. He's now at Oxford studying. So obviously, like I'm so I'm very proud of him. I'm hoping one day he might be on University Challenge as well. But thank you. I'll say it, thank you, Oscar Paul. Very enthusiastic student. Next up are two show and tells about the pros and cons of technology. We're going to hear about the folk history behind Pierre Marcar's laptop cover after media lawyer Jonathan Code shares a lesson for his celebrity clients. I have in my hand one of the most scary things that has emerged since I started doing this work. Now, David, you would not believe the amount of trouble which celebrity clients of mine have got into via their mobile phone. Celebrities are, are more accessible now. That They could easily just be accessing their Twitter, and if they see something they don't like, they could you know, easily get in an argument with someone and, and, and cause more problems for you. Well, they cause more problems for themselves. You know, I have pulled a number of clients out of fairly deep holes um, when, by a combination of being angry and possibly a couple of glasses of good wine, uh, something most unfortunate has been said online. And, you know, Katie Hopkins, for example, lost her house uh, because of a tweet that she made about a food blogger and uh, Sally Burko, the wife of the, the, the Speaker of the House of Commons, also lost a great deal of money. But actually, uh, the, the, you, you make the good point that the power that celebrities have via their mobile phones. And of course, some of them have hundreds of thousands and millions of followers. Now, so let me give you an example of where actually I was able to use a mobile phone to the benefit of a client. Peter Geldof's agent contacted me and said that uh, one of the glossy magazines, I think it was Heat, was going to run a piece uh, suggesting that Peaches had facial surgery, that she'd had a nose job. You know, what could I do about it? I said, look, 
you know, not very much is the answer. So what they're going to do is they're going to find some hard up plastic surgeon. They're going to sit him at a desk and show him you know, 50 pictures of peaches and try and find two that are from different angles where he's able to say, well, you know, speaking as a plastic surgeon, I think she's had a no job, all that kind of thing. And unfortunately, you know, there's, there's not a lot really that I can do about it. So the agent said, OK, well, thanks ever so much. I'll pass that on peaches. About 15 minutes later, he rang up, said, look, she's really apoplectic about this. She really, really wants to have a have a go. You know, is there anything you can think of? I said, well, actually, I've had time to think about this. Am I right that Peaches has a six-figure number of Twitter followers? He said, yes, she does. Right. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. I'll get in touch with the magazine, and I'm going to say, so the first thing we're going to do, oh, Heat magazine. I think it was Heat magazine. We're going to we're going to spike that story uh, because you go out weekly. Peaches can tweet like that, so we're going to spike the story. So it's of no value to you because it's done. So the second thing we're going to do is we're going to ridicule the story because Peaches is going to say, "How likely is this? I get packed every day. If I've been." Uh, had surgery it would show up in the pack pictures and also i'm pregnant so i'm not going to be able to have surgery because i'm pregnant so the third thing that we're going to do is that if then the story comes out that'll be defamatory of peaches by innuendo because it'll be suggesting that peaches own denials of having plastic surgery are untrue so then we're going to sue you so we're going to do all three of those things unless you drop the story which is what they did. Well, my Mac I carry around in a uh, felt cover mm-hmm. because I've spent quite a lot of time, I think in total one and a half years or something in Mongolia over the last 10 years. Which because, is Because as part of the format people and working with you and Michelle and other, we were brought to Mongolia. You were there and you brought me in. And it's a... And it's been an amazing place to go and work with television. Reinventing a channel for Miss Norman Chinpat there, which has been fascinating. Indeed. I really love being there. It's such a different country. I mean, not only is their television different, it's getting to look more like ours now <laughs> yeah. because of us. Because of us, yes. <laughs> so now, Cultural now invaders that we are. <laughs> it's less different now than it was 10 years ago, where they also had these very long sentences. Remember that? Oh, God, yes. I we do. actually measured that when question could be five minutes long and then the answer seven. So that's it's very good for the interviewer because you need to come in with two two questions for (laughs) a half hour program. I've been spending quite a lot of time out in their gears, which is what they call the yurt, those big round felt tents that people outside but also inside town actually live live Mm -hmm. in. And those gears is uh, made of felt, a very thick kind of felt. And uh, I discovered that they make a lot of other things from that too. And now they're trying to make a bit of an industry out of it. So they make very nice felt things that they're trying to sell to tourists because they're trying to figure out how to make money. Mm. And this beautiful thing I saw in the store, and I actually thought, oh, I should try and export them and help them with it. So I found the two women who made it. 
And I did try and figure out, but I, I'm not good at that kind of thing, unfortunately. <laughs> but I bought a couple of them and I'm it's still, and it really is an amazing thing. And somebody should sell it around the world. I've had it now for 86, eight years. It's, it's as you can see, completely new. There's not mm, one thing beautiful. that's broken. It's amazing. So just describe it to us for our Well, it's, it's really gray felt like your old woolen socks. I mean, it has the same color as when we made wool because it's made of, of very condensed pressed wool and it's just sewn together and I don't know how they're able to make the sewing so so it never breaks. It hasn't gone up and then there's a, a ribbon across it that holds the little flap. That's the same kind of ribbon they have on their big coats when they ride. So they are these very colorful yellow, red, shiny and that color relates to the national colors. Or? Yeah, it's the sun symbol, right? It's it's the country of the eternal sun because it's I think it's the country in the world where they have an average of three hundred and forty days of sunshine a year. Then right. it's called the blue sky country. It's also called blue sky country. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So your Mac symbol of modern technology sits inside. The felt cover made by women in Mongolia mm-hmm. that represents the material used to build their traditional uh-huh. gears. That's a great story. This next pair of podcast guests are related in two different ways. They've both worked on the chase and they're both going to show us some creatures, both fictional and real. Here's composer Paul Farrer. And first, executive producer Bob Bowden. Well, uh, as as you gentlemen know, and many people know, I am a collector of vintage game show uh, props and set pieces and memorabilia. And one of the things I'm proudest of is this here. It is an original whammy from the CBS Pressure Lux series. Uh, there were uh, four whammies on every contestant's podium. And if you hit four whammies, you were out of the game. But if you hit any whammy at any time, you lost all your money. And the, the, the whammy was an animated character uh, that would crawl across the screen in many different themes uh, and became the, the sort of uh, identification of Pressure Luck as a a cool, different kind of look and feel for the show. So this is one of the original whammies. And here I've got two of the slides. Everything on the board at that time was slide projectors projected onto this board of 18 squares. And the slide projectors had uh, five different slides in in each square. And uh, here are two of them. This was a whammy slide, one of many. And this is the most iconic one, Big Bucks which uh, became the uh, mating call for all contestants who wanted to to avoid a whammy and get the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I've brought into show and tell today is a greyhound. Now, about five years ago, four years ago, the uh, the chase spinoff, Beat the Chasers, was uh, was commissioned by ITV, and uh, spoke to the producers, and we sort of said, well, you know, what are we going to do with this? And I said, well, this this is a great opportunity to have a kind of a an older, more serious brother for the chase because it's a primetime show, it's bigger money, it's 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 sort of slightly faster moving, it's kind of darker, it's it's on late at night, so you can have some sort of adult humour. So it's got this kind of slightly more seriousness to it. So I thought, well, one of the great pieces, a starting point for Beat the Chasers would be to use the 
chase a walk on when they come on and sit down as my main theme. So take that as a starting point and expand it out. And so that's what I did. And whole new bunch of music, whole new suite of music. Uh, but I wanted to have its own identity and yet feel familiar to Chase audiences because it's the Chase, but not really. And it's all of them, but it's kind of like, you know, all that sort of stuff. And somebody sent me a clip of their Greyhound <laughs> freaking out watching Beat the Chasers. Right. And I was like, what's going on here? And basically the, what was happening was this Greyhound's owner watched the Chase every night at five o'clock and the greyhound knows that's when dinner time is <laughs> <laughs> so at nine o'clock he turns to beat the chasers on and this dog's sort of sitting there listening and it's like i'm about to get fed <laughs> and this dog's freaking out and it's completely and this guy was like essentially saying look this 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 innocent animal it's understood the sonic world. It's understood what I've tried to do, which is make it kind of like sound familiar and yet not be repetitive, that it is different, but the same. And this dog got it. I'm about to have my dinner again. And he's watching Beat the Chasers. And this dog's flying around the house at like 9.30 at night. And this guy sent it to me saying, you might want to look at that. And I looked at that and I went, that's got to be better. That's got to be more an honest response to my music than any award or any kind of viewing figures. Just that innocent animal in itself, understanding what I was trying to achieve. And to me... There's no higher praise than that. In case you've been wondering, our show-and-tell item was reverse-engineered when we were trying to come up with a name for the podcast. In a sense, it came about at random. And speaking of randomness, here's TV adjudicator Olivia van der Werf. The item that I have got to show and tell you about is a bag of ping pong balls, um, which is not terribly sophisticated, but is uh, a spectacularly useful part of my job because so many shows depend on randomness, random allocation of order of play, random allocation of questions. Getting a computer to generate something random uh, is more complicated than it sounds. As you know, David, randomness is a, is a peculiar thing. Uh, things often are random but don't look random, but that's the nature of randomness. So ping pong balls in a bag, you can't really argue with that. And a good example of a time when I have used a bag of ping pong balls was on Red or Black, which was a show uh, 10 or 11 years ago where... We had, I think, 248 people um, randomly whittled down to one person who might or might not randomly win a million pounds. And um, one of the games was to do with the position of parachutists and where they landed on a target and whether they had a red or black parachute on. And we had to make sure that nobody could suggest that the best parachutist with the best aim was given a specific parachute. And to achieve that, I found myself being strapped to the floor of a plane uh, with (laughs) the side open, which just felt all shades of wrong, with a bag of of ping pong balls uh, and six blokes with parachutes uh, and they were all red or black. And they were all numbered and I randomly pulled balls out of a bag to decide the order in which they would jump out of the plane. 
Uh, and but, like, did, did, didn't all the balls like fly out of the bag? Or... No, the the, the, the bat. I have very good control over my uh, my bag of balls, so um, I uh, I am skilled at that. So I pulled them out randomly. They jumped out, and then uh, we had a winner. But it was a very surreal moment. I remember looking at myself, thinking. I'm a lawyer, and ostensibly I'm a compliance <laughs> lawyer. And when did life get this peculiar? You didn't sort of like go, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind a divorce case or something at this point. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> never. Uh, no, I'm really lucky. I have, I have a really fun. I mean, some of the times it's hard, but, but I have a really fun job uh, and really varied. And that was, uh, that was particularly insane that moment. This next pair of items relate to paper in some way. In a moment, we'll hear from Chris Curley, a former commissioner who's now owner of his own indie company, Curley Vision. But first, here's executive producer Sue Allison talking about a technical drawing she had to do. Well, I've brought something from the chase. In another life, if I could draw and if I was in any way artistic, I would have loved to be a set designer. I always really enjoy trying to figure out the challenges of a show. How do you make this format come alive with how it looks on screen and what the sort of physicality of the set is? But I literally can't draw. And so whenever I've worked with set designers, they have to try and interpret my squiggles and appalling stick drawings to <laughs> work out this idea that I've got in my head that I just can't put down um, on paper. So what I've brought is my show and tell. I'm going to show it to you now, so um, which obviously no one can see, but you can you can assess um, the quality. <laughs> I've no idea why Justin and David are laughing because there's some very top quality artistic skill being shown, and it is. I mean, it... go on, David. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful right angle triangle. Yes, and it is a very clear and accurate description of the set for the chase. It's I'm showing that so the right angle is the table, and at the bottom of the right of the of the pointy bit of the uh, triangle is Brad, stickman number one, and contestant stickman number two, and at the top um, of the triangle is uh, another stick person who is the chaser, and there's probably about. 10 lines on the drawing altogether, and that is what I showed the designer and said right can you make that into a set please? brilliant <laughs> but there the chase is, is standing up well probably only because I can't draw someone sitting down <laughs> but hey you know in some ways in some ways the simplicity of it is it's genius because <laughs> if, if you can explain it yeah if you can explain it that simply if that is the mechanic of the show which it is which you can do in 10 lines and uh not very straight ones, let's be honest. Um, then, um, then I think that's that's really the essence of a of a of a, sim- a cleverly simple format. But you do see why I'm not a set designer now. Yes, I do see. That. But that that triangle has now been replicated in nearly twenty countries. So with <laughs> slightly uh, straighter lines, luckily. Yeah, it's a very important triangle and one that should obviously be in Bob Bowden's Museum of Game Show History. Oh, I would yeah, say. I should, should I send it to him? It should. Yeah. You should send it to Bob. Absolutely, he loves that yeah. kind of thing. I think I hope I hope it's in the format Bible as well. <laughs> so do I. That's excellent. Maybe what you should do in the Bible is just send them that the first time they ask for <laughs> set designs. Just send them. <laughs> that's that. what our designers had to work with. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a flyer. It's a show I made called uh, Britain's Most Extraordinary Dancer for Sky One. It was a one-off special for Sky One, and we made a pilot for VH1 in America six months later. But that flyer, we were doing the casting tour, going around the provincial nightclubs of Great Britain, searching for that dancer you see in a nightclub who you look at and think, what the f- are you doing, right? <laughs> it was the search to kind of find the real David Brent. So we were going to right. lots of different flyers, and I need to advertise we were coming. So I got this flyer, bespoke flyer, designed from uh, a place in in uh, Shoreditch. I said to the uh, designer, "Can you in- insert white box here?" And the idea by that was I was going to write the person we were going to would write in the day and time we would be there. You just put in, just do an insert white box here, and we can fill that in. Fantastic, great, can we? Cut to about a week later, ten days later. The huge box of flyers turn up, and I'm and I'm going around the office. Only small. I've gone. Oh, the flyers here! I'm really excited about the flyers. The flyers here. We've all seen the thing. It looks great. It's going to be fantastic. It, I open the flyer, and in text in the gap where the white box is says, "Insert white box here." <laughs> <laughs> and that was. A lesson in TV I have taken ever since for the last 20... It was 2004, that. Nearly 20 years. Assume nothing. Assume, you may have been clear. You may have sat with the person. You may have explained it. You may have showed it. You may have religiously told them what you want to expect and what you need to happen. Assume nothing. Insert white box here. And to bring us back up to date, a couple of our most recent show-and-tells revolved around photographs. Computer graphics expert Chris Goss has some candid snaps as his object, but first, here's showbiz correspondent Ross King with a suitably glamorous Hollywood tale. It's it's a photograph. Am I allowed to have a photograph? Is that okay? Absolutely. Of me with Michael Douglas and Kirk Douglas and... So I'm there with two absolute legends. The photograph was actually taken by Catherine Zeta-Jones, and it also features the back of Catherine's dad's head. (laughs) (laughs) And this was just when they got engaged, and they had a very small dinner party in L.A. And Kirk, who was just the most incredible man, stood up and said, it's all right for you kids, but he said, I'm going now. He said, because I've got to go to the disco, he said. (laughs) And as he stood up, I thought, I am not missing this opportunity to get a photograph. And then Michael said, I want to be in it too. And then Catherine said, I will take it. And I just remember at the time thinking, wow, this is one heck of a Hollywood moment, which is me with Michael and Kirk and Catherine taking the photograph. So that's, that's, uh, that's kind of like my... My, my show and tell but the other little one that I have is the clang one of my MBE from the Queen because to actually have met the Queen twice and to be honoured for broadcasting and and the arts and charity is just amazing but the funniest thing about it is that the first time that I met her very quickly I was doing a gig in Hyde Park and she was very far back they built a little booth for her in Prince Philip way back in Hyde Park and at the end of it we met the the royal party and uh, Her Majesty chatted a little bit. And then I said, Mom, you were very far back. 
could you see okay? And she said, without a word of life, she said, I was so far back, I could have stayed at home and opened a window. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a collection of pictures, actually, from a, from a particular show. Okay. We did a show called Million Second Quiz in China, originally an American show. And so the version in China ran, it was a show that ran live for seven days. And it's quite a complex show. And there's two stages and there's a lot of technology. And um, I went over there and helped set it up. And then we came back for the production. They built this massive set in, in a theme park, actually. And it was an amazing job, very complex, big crew. After a few days there, I noticed that I'd come across people sleeping in the in you know across the seats on the floor you know hidden away and so I started I started to take pictures of people <laughs> and um, including our own guys actually and there's a dreadful picture of me asleep in a corner somewhere you know because it, it was hard work but there were great pictures of like a security guard asleep with all of us around him and 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 the operators asleep at some point and so anyway we were there for several weeks and at one point I had a production meeting with the producers and um and I and I was saying to the producer I was saying I think you've done an amazing job here in a very short time frame a lot of technology a lot of things going on you've put this show together you know the set looks amazing the lighting is fantastic the production values are great you know and the producer said to me well thank you very much but in China, we never sleep. And I go, well, that's not true. <laughs> and then I proceed to show the pictures of all the people that sleep in various places all around the, all around the set. Anyway, they did laugh with me. Um, that's a great story. And that's it for now. We're very grateful to all of our guests who've been on the podcast over the past year. It's been great fun hearing their stories. We'll be back soon with more news, views, features and fun about the TV industry. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>